filmed a creative living show. And I'm so excited to have my good friend here, Trace Cumberbatch. Hopefully I'm not missing any, any pronunciation there. Hey, Tracy, how are you? Hi, good Please morning. Yourself. Yes. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on today. Um, a little bit about me. I am a retired Naval officer. I was in the Navy for a little over 22 years as a healthcare administrator and uh, just recently retired in December. And so I have been enjoying <laughs> retired life. Um, and sort of exploring new opportunities and uh, yeah, real estate investing being a big part of that. Um, but also bigger than that, like this journey to financial freedom and trying to establish a foundation where I can take people along on that journey with me and with my family uh, to hopefully, you know, share what we're learning and doing and be able to help them accelerate their path so that they don't have to make some of the same mistakes that I did. Right. So, so when, tell me like from the beginnings, when did you start uh, doing real estate? When you start really seeing like, okay, this is what I wanted to do, right? Because I think, you know, especially lately, people think uh, real estate, you can just start and then you can retire and uh, and then you don't need to do anything and kind of makes money for you. You can quit your w W2. Is that the way it is? <laughs> that is not how it was for me. Um, I do think some people have been, you know, maybe very lucky with their timing in terms of like when they got started in real estate and, you know, avoided some early missteps or something and, and kind of got right on it. But it was not that way with me. So I probably have been interested in doing real estate since the early 2000s, right after I joined the military. Okay. I got to my first duty station and I watched some of my coworkers. I was stationed in the DC area. This is 2000. Um, and I watched some of my coworkers purchase properties when we first got there and three to five years later, turn around and sell them for like double what they bought them for. And I was like, clearly I am not doing something right because, you know, I was just starting out. I was barely making like a thousand dollars a month. Um, you know, it just didn't seem feasible. It wasn't even within the realm of possibility as far as I could conceptualize that I could afford to buy a house. And so I was, I mean, I was still sort of house hacking, but, you know, living with roommates and saving money where I could that way, but I wasn't owning the property. Um, so, I mean, it goes as far back as that, where I was like, man, like I really, I see how owning real estate can build wealth, but I just didn't feel like it was for me, whether my timing was off or I didn't make enough money or whatever it was. I had these really at the time they were limiting beliefs, but I just didn't think that it was possible for me to do that at that time, but I saw the potential. So, you know, fast forward about seven years, I started out enlisted and I was a hospital corpsman. And in 2007, I got my commission as a medical service corps officer. So started making like double what I was making before. And so for the first time in my life, I felt like I was in a better financial position to actually be able to purchase a home. And so my first job as an officer was actually to go to graduate school. And so the Navy sent me to San Antonio, Texas which is where I decided to retire. Um, but I bought my first house here and I bought a big enough house that I thought someday I might come back and retire and wanted to live in that house. So I was envisioning, you know, potentially having a husband and a couple kids. And so I bought, you know, like four bedroom, two bathroom, two car garage, the nice fenced in backyard, but it was just me. So I got a couple roommates to kind of help pay the rent and, you know, my 
that was really where my real estate adventures began. And so I ended up only being here for a year and the Navy moved me back to DC. And so it was like, really not going to be financially smart to turn around and sell the house that quickly. Right. And so I started trying to figure out, you know, what's my plan going to be? Am I going to rent it out? So, you know, sort of by default, I became a landlord. And that first year, I actually did the property management myself from DC. I was pretty lucky, didn't have any major issues. But then I got orders to Italy. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to try to self-manage this property from overseas, you know, seven hour time difference. God forbid something goes bad and I have to like fly back. That would be a very expensive plane ticket. So um, I knew that I was like, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this, I need to hire a property manager and kind of let them deal with the day to day. And so that's what I did. And I never went back even after I moved back to the States. I was like, I'm not going to, not going to self-manage. Um, it just took so much burden off my plate that I was like, it is well worth it. And I, I think I got really lucky that right from the beginning, I had a pretty good property manager. So no major issues there. So then kind of fast forward another 10 years, I stationed overseas. I lived in San Diego, which is a very high cost of living area. And the only way I felt like I would have been able to afford a house would be to live like an hour away from town. And that was just something lifestyle wise I wasn't willing to do. So I rented while I lived there. Then we got stationed overseas again in Singapore. And I just didn't buy another property. I just kept that one house and I kept looking and, you know, I, I had this idea that I could buy maybe a small multifamily and rent it out, but I just, the timing kept feeling not right. right. Uh, so then we get stationed in Singapore and I met my husband while I lived in San Diego and we got married and moved to Singapore. Oh. And within a few weeks of arriving there, we found out that we were expecting our first child and so for the first time, you know, in very quick order, it was like, okay, now not only am I responsible for this spouse that I drug halfway around the world on my military orders, but now we're going to have a kid. And so I really started thinking about financial responsibility differently. I think I was pretty cavalier when I was younger because it was just me. And so I wasn't really worried about how my financial decisions were going to impact anyone else. So we started listening to a podcast called Choose FI. And that was really the turning point, I think, for us in terms of this idea of financial freedom and that it might actually be possible and sort of shifting our mindset and thinking about things a little differently. And so from there, you know, we we did a lot of listening um, and a lot of adjusting in terms of bringing down our spending and starting to really intentionally plan for what we wanted our future to look like. And then the pandemic happened <laughs> um, and we moved back to the U.S. in the middle of the pandemic with uh, both of our girls that we had while we were in Singapore. Uh, so it was a it was a very busy time while we were there. Um, but we moved back to the States and it was like, OK, now we need to buy a house. We need to you know, figure out like what's our plan going forward. We had pretty much decided that I was going to retire from the military after that tour, um, just with all of the additional responsibilities of being a mom and a wife. I was really feeling torn in my job between trying to do everything that was expected of me as a military officer, as well as be present for my family, right. uh, which is something that was really important to me. And so as we decided to pursue my retirement, it became that much more important that we had this sort of like, you know, financial freedom plan and brought our costs down and had, you know, figured out what we were going to do. 
And so I decided at that point, I knew I wanted to do something with real estate. I didn't know what it was yet. Um, and so that's a journey that I'm still kind of on and figuring out, you know, what is my place in the real estate world and as a real estate investor um, and what that will look like going forward. But so far, I'm really enjoying it and um, have found a place in the multifamily community. Yes. And, uh, and so, you know, that's that's what I'm doing for now. So now, Tracy, do you do any single family? Did you buy more single families and then mm -hmm. go to multifamily? Or because, you know, just for my, you know, for my, I've been in real estate for about 15 years. So I own buying holds, mm -hmm. single family. I've done short term, middle term, anything like the economy changes, something happens, we adapt. But, uh, and then lately, I would say in the past year, I started looking more multifamily. Because, you know, the first thing for me was like, wow, everyone can have a, a large multifamily. You know, like it's not like for the big corporations or big people with deep pockets. We all can do it. So that's for me. And especially when we uh, I joined the mastermind to learn more how to, you know, to, to, to manage the asset and everything. So was, for me, it was like, wow, this is possible but for me it took me years and years and years and seeing like wow it's great i've done great but it's 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 small increments mm -hmm. but it takes a long time like you know for the house to appreciate it's five years seven years so and but and then i see you and my question i'm curious about it like did you go from one single family a couple single families and you're like okay let me let me you know, tackle that big animal that it's multifamily. How did it happen for you? Great question. So we did buy one more single family home and that was when we moved back to the States, but that was like for us to live in, not as an investment property. So, you know, my original plan I mentioned was that someday maybe I would move back to San Antonio and live in that house. But because of the timing of when we were moving back, it was in the middle of the pandemic. And when I notified my tenants that we were intending to move back and occupy the property and we weren't planning to renew their lease. They like begged, you know, please don't make us move right now. We'll pay you more money, like whatever it takes, but like, please do not make us move. And so, you know, their offer was good enough that we were like, well, let's see what our other options might be. And so we ended up finding a new construction property that we really liked and, and purchased that instead. Okay. So then the next year, so that was 2020. So then in 2021, when their lease was up, they they were here for some kind of training program. And, and so their time was up and they were they were leaving. So one year later, they were ready to move. Um, and at that time, the market was doing pretty well. And I made the decision, like I knew that I wanted to get into multifamily. I had been looking for like a triplex or quadplex or something like that. Uh, just to kind of dip my toe in the multifamily waters, if you will. Um, I just wasn't finding what I was looking for. And so I did not do a 1031 exchange or anything like that, but I decided that it was the timing was right and I was ready to kind of make that move. So I sold that property um, in January of 2022, actually, is when I ended up selling it. Wow. And then I just was kind of waiting because at that point the market was going crazy and all of the multifamily you know fourplexes that i had been looking at i was i was priced out of them now oh. even even with the great return that i made on the sale of that property even after paying capital gains tax and the you know, depreciation recapture and all of that i felt like i did pretty well but i wasn't finding anything that i felt like i could afford so i was like you know what i'm getting ready to retire i think it's in our best interest to just give us a little bit of a cushion 
And so we took that money and we put it in the bank. And I cannot tell you how much over the last year as we've been going through this transition process, it has really helped mentally (laughs) for me to have that little bit of cushion to give me the space to try something new. And so, you know, between retiring from the military and doing some, you know, pretty intense financial planning over the last couple of years to figure out, you know, what's my pension going to be? Am I going to get a VA disability? What is that going to look like? And then being really intentional with bringing down our spending so that we have this space to kind of figure out what's next. And I was really fortunate as a part of my retirement, I was able to do this program called SkillsBridge. And so the military offers this transition program where you can basically do like an internship with a company uh, as you're transitioning out. So you're technically still on active duty. You're still getting a paycheck Mm -hmm. from the military, but you can start learning from these other companies. And there was a local broker here who has a SkillsBridge program he offers. It's three months long. um, And his intent really is to show the participants all of the different ways that you can grow wealth through real estate, whether it's being an agent, whether it's being a broker, doing short-term rentals, um, syndications, you know, all these different things. He talks about property management, um, you know, commercial versus residential. Like he really goes into all the different facets over the course of these 12 weeks that were, were we were with him. But he introduced me to syndication. I had never heard of syndication before. I had no idea that average people like you and I could pool our resources with other people and buy a big multifamily property or a shopping center or, you know, storage units or you, you name it, but yes. things that cost multi-million dollars that I could not fathom ever being able to come up with enough money to buy that on my own, but that this process exists where we can work together, you know, as a team and partnership to take down these larger assets. And so once he introduced me to syndication, it was like this light bulb went on and I was like, I need to learn more about this. But he had only ever participated in a syndication as a limited partner. So Mm -hmm. he knew the value of it and he had seen it from that side of things, but he had never actually been part of a general partner team. So when I went to him with my questions of like, okay, like I want in, (laughs) how do I do this? He was like- I have a question. So, so you said a limited, you know, LP, limited partner, and then GP, general partner. Can you break down for for uh, for people that are listening so they understand what that means? Yes, yes, that's a really important point. So, general partners are the people who are like the active investors on the deal. So they're the people who are going out, they're finding the deal, they're analyzing the deal, they're doing the negotiations with the broker and the seller to you know, come up with a a price, they do all the due diligence, they, you know, come up with a plan, you know, the business plan for how they're going to increase the value of the property to drive these returns for the partners. And then the limited partners are the folks who come alongside them and bring capital to the deal, but are essentially passive in their role in the in the deal. And so, you know, it's important for limited partners to kind of do their own due diligence on the front end to vet this general partner team that they're going to invest with. Yes. But once and they do, do that, they're, yes. you know, hands off. Just, just give us some tips. Like, how do you vet? Because I've, I mean, I'm sure you heard stories about syndications mm-hmm. that didn't go really well. I think some, the GP team didn't know, you know, 
I'm not sure, but I hear that a lot. So what is the, for you, like what, what does uh, a person, when they're looking to invest as an LP, put some capital into a syndication, how they should vet the GPs or the general partners? That's a fantastic question and really, really so important for people who are considering being a limited partner, because once your funds are in the deal, there's not really much that you can do. And so doing your research on the front end to make sure that you know, you know, who are the people that are on the general partner team that you're looking to invest with? How many deals have they done before? What's their track record look like? Have they gone full circle? Excuse me. Have they gone full circle on a deal where they can actually demonstrate that the business plan that they put together at the beginning is what they actually executed and that the returns that they projected were in line with what they actually delivered? Um, And I mean, obviously, everybody has to start somewhere, right? So not every GP team is going to have five to 10 years of experience. But what you should see with a team that's maybe newer is they're going to be partnering with people from teams who have experience. So somewhere in their sphere of influence, they're going to have active mentors who are, you know, engaging with them and bringing that experience to kind of help them through their first couple of deals. And so making sure that there is a level of experience, that there's somebody who's been through it already is on the GP team or very closely associated with and guiding the GP team, I think is probably the number one um, thing to make sure that you, that you're looking into. And then you can vet the deal as well. Like they should be willing to show you their underwriting. If they're trying to keep their spreadsheets close hold, I'd be a little worried (laughs) because they should be able to show you the data and explain what their plan is, how they're going to execute it. You know, what are the, you know, sort of the risks that they've accounted for and how they've accounted for those within their, you know, within their underwriting, it should be transparent. There shouldn't be a question that you ask that they're not willing to help get you the answers that you need so that you feel really comfortable with the way that they came up with their numbers, with the plan that they're executing and, you know, that they are who they say they are and they know what they're doing. And and then for most deals, like as far as the LP, if people are interested in in, uh, investing in a syndication with you, for example. So what, because multifamily, as everybody knows, especially multifamily, it's a long-term game, right? Because you, you usually, for most most investors, you get a property that needs to to do some renovations. They need a new property management, whatever mm-hmm. the value add is. But it usually take five to seven years. So it's not something like in single family that you can get in there stabilize the multifamily, get it better, rent it out, and then, oh, you start making money right away. Right. Multifamily is a little bit different. So for the people that want to invest, what is what are we looking uh, as far as uh, returns and time for the returns as far, you know, just in general, as far as today's market? Sure. I think, you know, it's important. You mentioned value add. Um, you know, it's important to know what asset class that you're talking about and what strategy you're looking at, because the returns are going to look a bit different if you're looking at, you know, like a class A stabilized property. Those are great for cash flow a lot of times, but you're not going to see the same equity growth that you'll see in a value add. So I think it's really important for potential uh, limited partner investors to make sure that they know 
what they're looking for before they start going and looking for deals and looking at all these returns uh, because they need to they need to understand their own finances and know what their goals are. Yeah. Are they looking to grow their money as you know quickly as possible? Are they looking for steady cash flow? You know, are they at that point where they really just want that passive income and they don't care as much about the growth? Do they want a little bit of both? You know, are they looking for tax depreciation because they're a high earner and they need to bring their taxable income down? Like, it's really important that they know what their goals are in order to find the deals that have the types of returns and benefits that they're looking for. But specifically for the value add space, um, we typically look for an internal rate of return that's in the ballpark of 14 to 17%, um, average annual return that's somewhere in the 18 to 20% range, uh, cash on cash return, usually like five to 8%, um, and then equity multiple, usually as close to 2x as possible. So that means like if you're if your investment is 100K and it's a five-year hold, at the end of that five-year hold period, you'd get your original 100K back plus another 100K in total growth. So 200K total. So that's what a 2X equity multiple would look like. Um, and a lot of times what you'll see is maybe if you're looking for a bit more of an aggressive equity multiple and you don't care about cash flow, sometimes development is a great opportunity because a lot of times development will have between like a 2x and a 3x equity multiple yes. but there's not going to be any cash flow because they're building it so then there's no money coming in it's all money going out until the development is done and then once they sell it they're able to return that capital but at a higher rate um whereas if you're looking for strong cash flow um like i said a class a you know kind of stabilized asset is usually going to provide a little bit better cash flow. Um, what's really great about the value add space that I love is that you get a little bit of both. And right. so if you if you do your plan right, usually within the first year, you're going to be doing your CapEx, you're going to do your repositioning. So whether you're doing physical renovations or operational adjustments or both, that first year is kind of how you start fixing and implementing those changes. And usually by year one of the hold period, you're able to start providing cash flow. And it might only be like a 3% cash on cash return in year two, and then a four or 5% in year three. But by the time you get to years four and five, maybe you're at seven or 8%. And so when you average those together over the hold period, usually of around five years, you want it to be somewhere in that like five to 8% ballpark. Yes, you know, I, I, I always say to my investors when I'm talking about syndication, it's just it's it's a long, you know, it's a long term game, yes. you know, game. But at the same time, you're there and uh, mm -hmm. you see uh, that compared to any other assets out there, you know, like single family or short term or multifamily is one that outperform throughout the time, all of them. That's what I like because especially now the way the directions, everything's going with affordability, you know, like mm -hmm. it's interest rates so high. So people are going to need more apartments to live, you know, or, you know, wanted to build, to rent. So there's going to be a lot of stuff like that that's just going to make the multifamily asset a lot more, uh, uh, perform a lot better because it's all based on rent. And once you stabilize that asset, if you have people that are there that have a great team, great property management, 
you can get that you know done and 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 then you, you just wait until the, the the market comes around and see the appreciation it's it's it's, it's really interesting you know for yeah. me that's what attract me to learn and you know like you, you know we've been in the same mastermind for a while mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of learning and it's a lot of uh you know it's a lot of getting to know other people network know how you can you know do the syndication and talk with brokers and uh, it, it's it's fantastic you know it's a totally new world but it's it's just something that if you're not if you don't want to do active what we are doing there's something that you can do passively just make sure you vet uh, the, the GP and you should be good. Let me just ask you before you move on, like as far as uh, uh, depreciation for people that are W-2s or for the physicians out there that, you know, they're, they're, they don't have time to do what we're doing, mm-hmm. the learning and, you know, acquisition. So how how does it, when does it take, uh, when, as soon as they put their money and they, they invest with the, the, the syndication, they start getting depreciation for that from that asset. How long does it take? Great question. Before I answer that question, I want to go back and touch on one other thing that you just said, because I think it's really, really important. And I kind of missed it when I was talking about like, what are the things that people can do to vet the teams that they're considering working with? And you were just talking about partnerships, property management. And I think it's really important to highlight that For every GP team, they have sort of like a sub level to the team of all the people that they partner with to get things done, like the property manager and their legal team and, you know, all these other people. But the property manager is so key in executing these value add deals, because a lot of times having a solid property manager can make or break your deal. (laughs) And they're the ones who are on the ground every day who have to actually be able to execute the business plan that you put together. And so I think that's a really important factor to consider if you're looking at a team and they have a property management group that they've been working with on multiple deals and they have this like robust established relationship, that's a really good thing, you know, as you're going through the vetting process. If you're working with somebody and, you know, they've got multiple properties in the same town, but they have like a bunch of different property managers and they've changed a lot of times. Like that would, I mean, not necessarily a red flag, but it would definitely be something I'd want to dig a little deeper to kind of be like, what's going on here? And like, do, do the partners of the general partners really know what they're doing and are they going to bring the best they can to the deal? Um, right. So I just wanted to, to touch on that, how important those other partners are, um, when you're doing the, the vetting of the deal. Yes. Um, okay. So back to your question about depreciation. Um, so this is one of those things where I feel like in, in a lot of cases, right. It's like, Oh, it depends. <laughs> There's a little bit of timing flexibility and it sort of depends on what the plan is for the renovations and also the timing of like when in the calendar year, the property is purchased and tax processing for the, you know, just for the deal. And so typically what ends up happening when you're doing this advanced uh, or bonus depreciation is you're going to have someone come in and they're going to evaluate the property and do these calculations through a process called cost segregation, where they determine what value can be done in year one 
And then that will be included on the K-1s that they get um, at, you know, as a part of their tax processing. So it's not like immediate as soon as it happens. It comes as a part of the K-1, but they should have some depreciation in that first year of their um, you know, ownership in the asset. Um, so for example, I'm looking at a deal right now where we're going to close in December. And so we're still within fiscal year 20, or I'm sorry, calendar year 23. And so for tax purposes, there are some changes that are coming down the line with regards to cost segregation and the advanced depreciation and how much you can take in year one. It used to be 100%. This year it's 80%. Yeah. Next year, I think it's going to be 60%. And so it's it's on this like decreasing sliding scale over the next several years. And so, I mean, that's a 20% difference depending on how much you're putting in and how much the property is worth. Like that could be a large chunk of money um, to be able to get in on a deal that closes before the end of the calendar year this year in order to get that 80% advanced depreciation as opposed to 60% if it closes after January 1st. Um, So that's one thing to consider like timing wise right now, as we're in this fourth quarter now, and we're, you know, approaching the end of the year, if there are high earners out there who are looking for investments to offset their, uh, you know, their earnings to bring their taxable income down, finding assets that will close before December 31st, you know, gives you 20% advantage on what that bonus depreciation could look like. Um, and, a sort of rule of thumb, loose factors is not exact, but on a lot of these value add properties that we've been doing, um, we sort of approximate like a 40%, um, you know, of the amount that you invest is what you could expect to come back as bonus depreciation in year one for this year. That will be less, you know, it, it will look less as we go forward and that percentage keeps coming down. So if you invested 100K into um, a property that closes before December 31st of this year, then you could expect to see somewhere around 40K as bonus depreciation to, huge. You know, to go against your taxable income. For this yeah. So it's not only investing and getting your returns back, but you, you also get the advantages on a taxes side too. Yes. So, so Tracy, just to, you know, to finalize, you know, uh, this conversation, uh, as far as tell me a little bit, like what are your, what's your goals? What's your, uh, do you, do you have like a vision board or how mindset wise, like, did you read any books that keep you going? Because I'm sure like some days you're like, wow, it seems so far away. And then some days are like, wow, I'm so close. Look at me now. So is there anything that, that you can, that work for you or any books or, you know, like, tell me a little bit about your, what for you is financial, financial freedom. What does it mean to you? I think for, for me, it all started with sort of freedom of my time, even more than necessarily like the money is more about having the flexibility to be able to prioritize my family first and then do the other things that I enjoy around it. Like, I don't think I'll ever be that person that spends 100% of my time, you know, sitting on a beach with my ties in my hand, no matter how much money I make. Like, I enjoy being a part of something. I enjoy giving back. I like helping people. Like, I I want to make a difference. And so I, I just don't see myself, you know, money not mattering. Like, I just don't see myself not 
working towards something, not having some kind of goal that I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. That's just sort of how I'm wired. Um, but for us initially, it really started with that whole transition of like having kids and trying to do all the things. And it was like, I feel like yeah. I'm being pulled in a thousand different directions. And I feel like I'm not doing any of the things I'm supposed to be doing very well. Like, how do I, how do I change this? Um, and so, you know, I was very fortunate. I had that timing of like coming up on my retirement from the military. And so I had a little bit of a built in uh, passive income on the horizon, you know, so it was really just kind of stick with it for those last couple of years to make sure that I got over the 20 year mark and then go from there. And so we we chose to focus on reducing our expenses to be able to sort of like fit our life within what we knew we would be able to get from the military. And then this year has really been like a repositioning year where it's like, okay, now that I have the time and space to like sit back and breathe and like look at what all my options are, I was really kind of overwhelmed initially, like all that was available to me. Um, and so it's been, you know, quite a process over the last year to kind of figure out like, what do I want to do? I mean, the last time I can't, couldn't tell you the last time somebody asked me that question, you know, being in the military for 20 years, you have very limited options of like, where you're going to be stationed, what job you're going to have, like you can provide them some input, but usually, you know, if you're lucky, you get like two or three choices to choose from. And so, you know, retiring and all of a sudden it was like, wow, like I literally can do anything. I've, I've never had these many options before. Like, how do I, how do I even begin to approach this? Um, but thankfully, you know, I had that um, introduction to syndication and was able to kind of take some of my you know, financial and business background and, and see a path of transition from how do I go from being a healthcare executive to a real estate investor? And a lot of the tasks and the processes and the, you know, building relationships and all of that is all things that I was already doing in my other job. And so it's really been more of focusing on the education piece for myself of like learning the lingo for what is, you know, real estate, multifamily, you know, all of those things and putting myself in places where there are already people doing what I'm trying to do. And so I think that has been huge in terms of helping me quickly sort of make the adjustments that I need to align myself with where I need to be to be successful moving forward with this new endeavor. Um, But I think, you know, to your question about what are some of the things that have kind of helped me besides joining a mastermind and, you know, making that investment in myself to put myself in a place where I can learn and grow with people who are doing what I want to be doing. There are a number of podcasts and books that I've read over the last few years that I think put me in the right frame of mind and in the right position to be ready to receive that opportunity when it came. Yeah. And so I would say as far as podcasts, a few of my favorite go-to podcasts, the Choose FI podcast um, FI for financial independence. Um, that for sure has been like the most pivotal for us when we lived in Singapore, we didn't have a car and I used to walk to work. It was like just about a mile. It wasn't, it wasn't too far, but it was long enough that I was walking, you know, 30 to 40 minutes each way every day. And so I listened to a lot of podcasts and wow. the my podcast was like my go-to and it was just the perfect time for me to need, you know, and what I needed to hear in terms of we were trying to change the way that we were doing things to be better positioned financially, to be parents and, you know, to set up this future for our kids, generational wealth. And, you know, what does that look like? And 
Um, Chooseify covers such a broad range of things related to financial independence, from travel hacking to, you know, how to apply for college <laughs> and anything and everything in between. And I just love that they they painted this picture of financial independence that was like, you have this board with all these levers on it and you can pull and push different levers to do different things. And so sometimes you might want to focus on spending less. Sometimes you might want to focus on earning more, you know, things like that. And just understanding that like, there's no one right way to do financial independence, but understanding that you have to know yourself first. You have to know what you need, what you want, what you value. And then once you figure that out, it gets a lot easier to right. pull those levers to get things in alignment. Um, and so that's what we spent the last five years doing. Um, so Choose FI, another great one is Afford Anything with Paula Pant. Um, and then the Tim Ferriss Show, um, he's the author of The 4-Hour Workweek. Yeah. And there are so many things, that book is also on my list, but like there are so many things that I got from him just in terms of thinking about things differently. I think we're so conditioned to think about things from a certain way because that's how things are portrayed in society, media, social media, you know, all the things it's like fed to us that this is the way it is. But then once you realize that it doesn't have to be that way and you can actually do it differently, um, you know, it, it really flips everything on its head. So um, I really, I love his show and pretty much everything he does. Um, other books, Essentialism, Atomic Habits, um, those were just really foundational in terms of that process of like figuring out what do we actually value as a family, what's important to us, and then how can we instill new habits that are going to help us pursue those things. Um, Die With Zero, I mean, we could do a whole separate talk just on <laughs> Die With Zero and like how much amazing content is in that book. Um, but it really has helped to sort of solidify those concepts of like the importance of experience over things and understanding that there's like a, a timing to doing different things over the course of our life and prioritizing those things that are really important when you can still do them and not waiting to retire and waiting to have enough money where you feel comfortable sometimes because you might not ever get to that point when you're still young enough to do the things you want to do and enjoy the journey too right it's not about oh i need to get there and then you know of course you need to have focus but enjoy the journey yes yeah totally um and then the book that i'm reading right now which has been really helpful in terms of like sort of this next level of mindset shift as an entrepreneur is 10x is easier than 2x okay and yeah. i think it really you know it's sort of that same idea of what four hour work week did for me when I read it a year or two ago, this is sort of like building on top of that. And it's this whole concept of like, what got you here won't necessarily get you to where you're looking to go. And I think that's really um, a true picture of like what our, our life and our path has been as we've been pursuing this journey towards financial freedom is, you know, initially, we focused on how can we cut costs? How can we reduce our spending? Like, how can we make sure that we can be comfortable on my military retirement? And now that we've done that, now we can kind of reposition and get a little bit more creative in terms of like, okay, like now, now that we're here, do we want to just like stay here and just, I mean, we could just do nothing and like live this life for the next couple of decades, you know, or 
is there something more that we want to accomplish and, you know, more that we want to give back. And, you know, I look at it from this perspective of like, the more that I'm able to make, the more that I'm able to give back, the better I'm able to position my kids for the future, you know? And so I think you have to be careful in this, you know, pursuit of more, like when is enough enough? And, you know, making those decisions in terms of like what at the crux of it, like what is it about and making sure that we don't lose sight of like the reason that we started doing it in the first place is to have more freedom and flexibility to put my family first. And so I regularly have to sort of, you know, check myself and make sure that I'm not letting it get too big to where all of a sudden I don't have control of my schedule. Yeah. And it's all about to checking yourself and see what success means to you and your family. It's not what other people are doing out there. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. trying to not get into that, you know, the, the way everything is now, especially social media, social media, we're always comparing ourselves to other people, but, you know, keep the focus, see what's important and keep on moving. So, so Trace, where people can find you? Where are you on Instagram, YouTube, what or I'm you- on multiple social media platforms, but the easiest way, like one place to find me is on my website, which is okay. plcventures.biz, B-I-Z. Um, and if you go to my website, links to all my socials are there. My mm-hmm. Calendly link is there if people want to set up a call. Um, and a little bit more about, you know, my family and our goals is there as well. And I'll put the information down here. Okay, so Tracy, thank you so much. It was so nice learning and, you know, getting to know you a little bit better. And, uh, um, you know, hopefully you guys all enjoyed it. And I'll talk to you later then. Thank you, Christiane. It was a pleasure to be here. All right, I'll see you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.